I'm with Eileen Serlin. Hi, Eileen. Hello, Serge. Bonjour. Bonjour. <laughs> so, how did you get from um, being a student of philosophy in France to what you're doing these days? You had asked me a question about starting a little bit earlier. Let me just say a few words a little bit earlier, because I think one thing we're looking at is is how I came to be so integrative. And um, so I did say as a child I was a little monkey. I uh, the world of of um, nonverbal communication. I always nonverbal communication was very natural for me. I used my body to, I always imitated people. I could tell a lot by the way they walked and carried themselves and used to caricature people to, as, as amusement for myself and other people. But I still, I, I, I'm always fascinated by the way people move through the world as their signature. It's, it's always spoke to me very, very strongly about who they were and what I could sense. Um, so there was that part, the nonverbal, and I was a tomboy. I liked moving, and it was very easy for me, probably more than verbal. Um, so dance was always easy. And then the same thing with dancing when I was 14 in Israel, when I um, went with a teenage group to Israel and discovered Israeli folk dance and also felt there the power of movement to shape a country, the power of culture to create a a sense of purpose and, and meaning in a group of people together. It really focused people's energies and motivated them. And song and dance, many years later I had the opportunity to talk to some of these pioneers who dance anthropologists, ethnologists, who came to Israel and created a culture. So they understood it. And I felt that at 14. Um, I also felt at 14 the power of dance and movement to... Um, Um, to, to, to bring life to a community. I, I felt that the suburbs in America were very boring and very disembodied and very um, teenagers didn't have much to do. Um, but in Israel, I, I felt that this way of dancing and working the land and really carried the ideology, brought groups of people together, And again, many years later as a dance therapist, I found this working in psychiatric hospitals everywhere, the power of movement to really um, trans both uh, express the, the daily life, but also to transcend it into some kind of ideal of health or wellness or purpose or meaning. Mm-hmm. So, so all of those I felt early on. So, so there's a lot there, and um, just maybe to uh, to provide some emphasis in the many, many things you say about dance and movement. Uh, part of it is um, the expressive ability of dance and movement for an individual, something that happens at the level of the group, mm-hmm. but also in your own very early interest in being, as you say, a monkey, a mm-hmm. sense of um, picking up uh, at a very nonverbal level, uh, picking up movement, that transmission of movement, that kind of understanding, empathy, connection that can exist through movement. I sent you, I think, a, an article that came out of many years later. I think I called it kinesthetic countertransference, um, mm-hmm. trying to articulate what it is that I'm sensing when I get a feel about someone. And, of course, you read your own body 
um, years later, I, I learned Laban notation, and I use some of that to articulate because it's such a precise language. Some of the things I'm feeling, um, but it's it it's more of an impression when you're feeling it about uh-huh. what the other person is conveying, and of course, you carry that other person in your own body. So, I know that. The joke among dance therapists is we're very good at merging, not so good at separating. But I think we um, we do tend to pick up other people's bodily expressions very quickly in our own bodies, and then of course have to work to sort it all out and understand yeah. uh, what belongs to whom and where the boundaries are and all that after the fact. So, so as we're talking about dance therapy and um, merging, separating, so in a way that dance of merging and separating that takes place, um, is it okay to talk a little bit about what happens during a session uh, when you do dance therapy? A lot of people are familiar with body psychotherapy in which Every body psychotherapist does something a little different, has different mm-hmm. modalities. But maybe, what is what is happening in dance? Is there really a dance between patient and therapist? Oh, yeah. And, of course, dance therapists will say the same thing. Every dance therapist works probably somewhat differently. And then, of course, you know, there's different schools of dance therapy. Some is when you're working with someone, you never move with them. You sit still and it's all an inner communication, but you don't have overt movement, and others really move with the person to use their own body and energy to kind of amplify or exaggerate or dialogue with the other person at a certain point in the process. Uh So, again, for me, I I cannot stay in any one camp. Uh, It always depends on the moment, whether I sit still or move with someone and in what way. I can't, I can't make a prescription out of it, but you'll find people, you know, on all, saying all variations. I think some of the biggest differences for me between the somatic therapies I'm imagining that you describe and what I'm imagining I do in a session is number one, most dance therapists I think don't start with, um, a problem to be fixed. Uh-huh. Somatic is more you have a pain or you have a, something that calls attention. Uh-huh. Specific problem. Dance therapy, it's much, it's much more like improvisation. I think the problem emerges often in the course of the moving or the issue. So, I always start with a kind of a warm up just to, I kind of assume when people come in often, we're all a little, uh, deadened, unable to feel. It's in the course of the warm up and the moving that you start feeling yourself and you, and your issues start be, start feeling again. So they're not always, you don't always come in clear about what you want to work on. Uh-huh. And, and improvisation is such a big part of dance therapy, I think, in that you're always, I think the way it's described is kind of tracking the images and the themes as they begin to clarify themselves in the movement. Yeah. And the role of the, the the dance therapist generally is not prescriptive, is you're not trying to fix something, you're trying to help clarify it, which sometimes means um, exaggerating it, amplifying it, mm-hmm. focusing it, but you don't want to impose. It's very process-oriented, mostly. You don't try to impose your own um, sense on it of what it is, what it means. You try to help guide the person so they come to their own clarity. 
So, so for instance, the person, the client is entering your office without necessarily a, a very clear idea of a specific concern or issue or topic. And um, in that hypothetical case, there's a little bit of a warm-up uh, where you go into some kind of movement. Yeah. I... I, I it's kind of a paradox. I had a woman come in once who um, just was uneasy, kind of agitated, didn't know what the problem was. As she moved, um, she began to look more clear, uh-huh. sort of a sense of discovery. She was finding it, finding it. And then all of a sudden, there's a kind of aha moment when it comes to consciousness, really, what the movement's been about or what the theme is. And you can see a settling in the whole body that, Gene Genlin calls it kind of the felt sense. Uh-huh. I worked with him, he worked with me. Um, that moment of when the felt sense comes to conscious clarity, the whole body sort of settles into an ah, you know, it feels like something settled into place. And what she said, the big insight she had was, ah, I'm confused. <laughs> And that sounds kind of silly, but but it, it that really was what was bothering her. And, yeah. and once she got a handle on the problem, she could then start trying to figure out how to go about working on that issue. Um, so so it doesn't have to be that you fix the confusion. It's just that you get clarity about what is out of balance or what is out of sorts. Right. That that, that she had that clarity that about being confused. Yeah. Yeah. That that leads you down a path to 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 an expression of the problem. So that happened as um, she actually was in the process of following the movement, the dance, and, right. and that brought up um, what was stored inside, maybe what, you know, it helped in a way to use Jendlin's wording to carry it forward. Yes. Yes, Exactly. So, Eileen, um, um, you talk about narrative in terms of um, describing your work and what you do with clients. And narrative, for many of us, is something that's very strongly associated with words and talk. How do you see the narrative unfolding in dance and movement? Uh, let me go to the end of that question for a second. Uh, because as you're talking, I'm thinking again about the Paris Opera Ballet, mm-hmm. beautiful film I just told you about. It's it's such an exquisite representation of nonverbal narrative. They use words at times, but when the ballet master is coaching them, the ballet master will say something like, "When you put your foot down at the end of the jump." linger a little bit, stretch out time, or or attack the position. Think of attacking or thinking of, they used words like urgency. And all of a sudden you could see the quality of the movement change. Mm. So the end point that I want to get to, and this gets back to the point of integration, when you see the dancer's whole movement change very subtly around one subtle point, um you can see how exquisite it is when mind and body are moving together. That's what I called about embodied thought. 
embodied thought. Yeah. You see the thought change the quality of the movement, and the movement was expressing that thought perfectly. Mm-hmm. To be in a state where your body is expressing your thoughts and your fantasies is so. Well, it's 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 the height of, I think, of being conscious, body, mind, and spirit, of being mm-hmm. so integrated at that moment. And sometimes dance therapists will say the problem that we work with, in, in a very general sense, is a disconnect between thought, fantasy, emotion, and behavior. Most people have some kind of, are hiding. Either they think one thing, but they act a different way, or they feel something that's disconnected, and it's, to bring all of those into a perfect harmony is very, very rare. But it's a sort of a concept of health. And you can see in the dancers of, of, it's like a platonic ideal of this perfection of mind and body together. Um, and when you're moving in that kind of, it's a beautiful harmony where, where your body, there's no, it's what uh, Laban used to call shadow, um, mm-hmm. shadow, uh, energies. Uh, there's a block incomplete where you're, you don't, um, you're not using all of yourself. Part of you is split off. Part of you is hidden. Part of you is, and you can see that in the movement. We can hear it in speech. So back to your question about narrative. To me, the most perfect narrative is that moment that I was seeing in the ballet where it's all together. Now that was nonverbal. Some dancers add words. Um, some dance therapists say that the original art forms were not separated. It was like oral poetry where uh-huh. the the words were not discursive words. They were not to do checklists of our day to day. Most you know many. Even words can be disconnected from affect and fantasy. So part of what dance therapists, I think, try to do is to is to bring expression into all the dimensions together so that the words, I often will start with movement, and then the words that come from the movement, I find if people are in a group or working with me, the words are more coming from the heart or from the center of the body somewhere, from the soul, than just from the mind. So if you, so it was really all of it, I think, together tells the story, but the story speaks in one piece. All the elements are speaking, working together. So you're, you're, uh, in a way, just um, what you're doing is promoting integration. Because at that moment, what's happening is um, you no longer have the disconnect between different ways of expressing or different ways of feeling or different ways of knowing? Exactly. Exactly. I, to me, that's, I guess I call it aesthetic. It's, it's, uh, it's like a moment of perfect truth, of perfect harmony that's rarely achieved. But when it does, you want more of it. It feels so good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, 
there's something very nice about using the word aesthetics because aesthetics uh, is going to imply, to evoke the word harmony, to evoke something that feels right, something that feels good, some sense of vibration, some instinctive, non-intellectual sense that things are right. I do have a feeling, the more and more I do, by the way, I the more and more I practice psychotherapy, I find myself, I, can't, I, I don't even know how to define what I do or what's, but I, I find just practically speaking, just by observing how I work and how people are responding, I feel that a certain amount of expressive therapists, there are, there are some cliches like the body never lies. Mm-hmm. There's another cliche that expression brings healing. I think those are very important first steps, but I don't think they're the whole process. I think that as we move toward this, like a continuum of expression where it's kind of un... The first step is to help people unblock blocks, and you get energy flowing, you get expression flowing. It may be what some psychoanalysts have called a little bit dismissively, just kind of mere catharsis. (laughs) I do agree with them that that alone is not the full spectrum of healing. It's an important part of it, but I I don't think it's enough. Mm -hmm. I think as you move along a road of kind of higher consciousness or more discrimination, you get to see what we saw in the ballet dancers, that they, or it's what Jung calls the transcendent function, and and Jung is very clear that this is where healing happens, in authentic movement, where the unconscious is flowing freely, but the conscious watcher part is very active but not inhibiting the expression. Mm-hmm. So there isn't a disconnect between unconscious and conscious, or the mover and the watcher. Now that's true in authentic movement. Um, I I do other things though, as integrative as a psychologist. Like if somebody the this question of confused, it maybe I may do almost like cognitive behavioral therapy and say, would you like a homework assignment? But this more comes out of my gestalt training Uh to make everything an experiment. So you're working collaboratively and you say, would you like to try just meditating on that word um, confused all week? Keep a journal, see what comes up around the word. And I know that Jung actually actually gave homework assignments too. Um, But I believe that taking it into the week and making it very practical. If I'm working with a couple, I'll say, pay attention to those moments where this issue has come up, uh, where one stops paying attention to the other, or where such and such, and then you bring that into the next session. So the narrative continues week by week. You're building, you're building a story of what's working and what's not working in somebody's life. You're looking at movement as exemplifying all those very subtle but very embodied moments in a life. So I want to just stop for a moment and here you just said a minute ago something of you're building a story, uh, paying attention to what's working and not working. And I think that gives a context uh, for... Uh, f- What's happening that's a little different from, say, doing a homework assignment um, in a sense of doing work and homework. But there is an experimental quality of the work of observing moment by moment what's happening. 
and that uh, total awareness, not just in terms of thoughts and ideas, but the kinesthetic awareness, um, that is very much about being observing, but also ready to take to make experiments. Isn't yes. there? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Is is there a question there? <laughs> uh, just curious to to uh, to develop that a little bit in the sense of how that is related to narrative. That in a way, narrative is not just uh, you know the sense that I have as I'm listening to you is that narrative is not just about telling a story that is past, but a sense of um, uh, telling a story as it is happening, as it is unfolding, and creating meaning as you're telling a story. So something that is very similar to um, a sacred ritual. I think there are two things that, yeah, I'd like to add to this um, definition of narrative. One is not only is it happening not just in the past, but in the present, so I'll say something about that, which is that it, um, I see narrative as sort of this, the way we move through the world. That may mean everything from how we organize our time, how we keep our friendships connected. It forms a tapestry over time that is about the way we, if we were a ballet, the way we move through the world. You can see it on stage. Uh, but we're, we're enacting that all the time. We just don't see ourselves. So I do see narrative as unfolding over time. I think that one ele- there are two elements that I think of in terms of what makes it healing that I don't often hear talked about. I think one is, as I was saying, I think it, narrative gets better. What I mean by that is it gets more functional, it gets more integrated, it gets more um, directed toward the meaning and purpose that you want it to be, the person wants it to be. Um, there are ways in which narrative change. So I'm talking about change over time. That uh, so again, it's not just repeating the story of let's say I'm going to be um, I'm going to be um, um, too much here, but it might be saying oh my narrative is I'm a victim, so I'm going to tell that story over and over. I think it can change. I think part of narrative is that it does change. Hopefully, it does change. We don't want to get stuck in a narrative. So it's both finding the turning points in the narrative that can keep it moving. I think that's part of the job of making narrative explicit, not just to get it out once and to freeze it. Uh-huh. The other part of narrative that I don't hear talked about very much, it's a very much part of my training, I think that comes from many years of, of Buddhist training, is also not to hang on to the narrative, not to get too identified, or as as they say philosophically, not to reify the narrative, make it too solid. I see that all the time. I am my narrative. Let me tell you my story. And there's too much ego in that. There's too much um, too much appropriation, too much ownership of it. There's a certain point at which you let go of your narrative and you are, let's say, more than your narrative or you're other than your narrative or your narrative doesn't define everything of who you are. So a lot of the narrative work I see, to me, doesn't get to that next point, which is, and of course I think of like the um, the beauty of the Tibetan monks doing the sand painting. You know, they can spend days or weeks making this very beautiful painting and then they just blow it all away. Uh-huh. And that's the final part of the narrative, not to put a frame on it and put it in a museum once the painting is done, which we do in the West so much. I think we get, we get caught in our narrative. So yeah, it's to help 
surface the narrative, see what it is, get it moving, get it unstuck, help it change, and then let go of it. Share it and let go of it so it lives in other people, not just in us too. Mm-hmm. So, how can you give an example of how this happens in the course of a session or a client's, an individual client's therapy? I think the most common one I just that just is coming to mind is I do see that as people who really have identified themselves as their narrative is one of having been a victim. Uh-huh. Begin to shift that. Um, I'm thinking more of groups here where I teach in Israel, and I, I hate to say it, but I think that's part of the cultural narrative of having been victimized, um, traumatized, and uh, you don't get over that, but it does shift to, let's say, taking more personal power for yourself in a group, uh-huh. taking more initiative, ways in which you can begin to shift that some stuckness around that narrative. So how does it, how do you uh, notice it? How do you see it happening in the course of movement? Uh, what, what came to mind when you just asked that question was a group that I did with women with breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Where um, one of the women without speaking was she was uh, and, and this group was with newly diagnosed women so they were often still kind of in shock very early diagnosis and and you see the effects of the shock really um, she was pretty much hiding in the corner through a good part of the group mm-hmm. didn't particularly want to share drawings or move with other people or anything like that by the end of the group she was literally in the center of the circle kind of the one to take down everybody's phone numbers and promise to stay in touch and so on she'd taken on leadership roles and, I mean, you can see literally moving from outside the circle to a central position. And what had happened in between? Um, a number of things. This is all group process stuff. One is that she was given permission to be where she was. Nobody said she had to change or come join the circle or anything. And once being allowed to kind of express it, and that is the power of of working with images, once you let people own their images, make them explicit, they can then sort of start changing and moving. So once she, once it was okay to be there, she didn't have to defend against anything, she had no more stake in having to be there anymore. She could start getting interested in what the other people were doing. Uh-huh. And without being... I saw that a lot, by the way, when I worked in psychiatric hospitals with back ward patients who had spent, in my mind, it was, it looked to me like they had spent a lifetime of saying no. No, I won't join this society you all live in. No, I'm going to march to my own drummer. No, I'm not going to be a good boy or good girl. No, I have nothing more to lose because I'm in here anyway. Um, and you can't threaten me or cajole me or, or tempt me with anything or reinforce my behavior or do anything because I have nothing more to lose and I'll go my, I'll, I'll live in, in whatever world makes sense to me and it's not your world. So if you come up to some of those people in a dance therapy session, this was way back in the old days where psychiatric hospitals were really awful places and people were put there when they were young and had nervous breakdowns and, 
had been on the back wards for 30, 40 years mm. and had, had really become patients, you know, in the sense of, um, you know, frozen into those roles. Yeah. Um, if you just put on music and go up to one of them and said, would you like to dance with us? 99% you're going to get a no, if any answer at all, of course. But but I learned, and I had masters in following this in apprenticeship on Bronx State Hospital, if you just put on music and you very indirectly create a sort of a flow in the room, you're consciously being indirect. You sort of swirl around people with energy and create little eddies of energy and get some music going that kind of carries makes a holding environment for the whole room, but you're not focusing on any one person. Uh-huh. So you don't focus on them and often pretend to sort of ignore them. You turn your back and you go on. They, not being put on the spot, will often start coming forward and wanting to join just because it's seductive. Uh-huh. And they don't, they don't have any stake in saying no anymore. So, yeah. and, and often by the end of an hour, you'll have a circle going just by having created the center of gravity in the middle of the room and among people. That makes it hard to resist. And it's the same thing about most of us. You want to be invited in, and you don't want to be put on the spot to have to repeat your old pattern of saying no, or I'm going to, this is the only way I know how to assert my individuality, as you say, A, I'm going to say B, or whatever things we've been stuck in for so long, you don't want to replicate that. So you create something different that creates an opening, and that will allow people to shift or be be different. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, that sense of um, creating the conditions for the flow, the, res- right. the respect for what's getting people, keeping people stuck, but creating the conditions for the flow. That's right. Yeah. So, as we talk about this, uh, one thing that comes very strongly from the many things you say, is that very strong desire not to simply be somebody who is doing movement for all that you're interested in movement, but somebody who is first and foremost interested in integration. And, yeah. Yes. No, go ahead, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, so it must be sometimes a little frustrating to, um, uh, to not have uh, a simple label to put on what you do. Well, that's just what I was going to say, Serge. Thank you for putting some words on this. It, yes, it's, it's, it's always a problem to me. People ask me what I do, and I wish I had a formula or a, I belong to a club or I could say I'm a, this kind of therapist or that. I, you asked, you know, what, um, what led to it. I mean, back to my childhood or something, I think that was my learning style, which was always... Um, that that is what happened when I was in um, in a honors program in psychology at the university. It was all very exciting, and I'd say, "But what about movement? Where's the body?" And then I found Anna Halpern and went off studying with Anna, and then then became a dance therapist. And I was among dance therapists. I would say, "But what about philosophy? And what about you know more?" Advanced clinical training and work, and then I went off and studied something. Gestalt was quite integrative for me then. Um, but I remember with Laura Pearls, who was kind of an atheist, I'd say, where's the spiritual? I needed to account for my interest in Buddhism and my roots in Judaism. Laura had some of that, but then I found Jungian sort of took me deeper to sacred areas of the sacred that I didn't then find in Gestalt. So, it was always a, a, it's a personally very difficult learning style of being in one place and always kind of 
seeing what's missing and then signing up for another community of theorists or learners and learning a lot there, but seeing that then that becomes kind of a church or a dogma or not complete for me and I go somewhere else. So Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's never been easy, but that's kind of how I've learned through my life. Yeah, so that sense of... um, um of the journey to uh, to expand, I think the the word that uh, um, wanting more, other side, other perspectives. You say expand, and I'm I'm chuckling, thinking now I'm trying to get better at, as you see, technology and um, putting myself on uh, Google and finding uh, keywords <laughs> and ad words. I'm I'm ba- I'm not even a baby at this, but this is what I see all the young people doing as we older. Therapists watch watch the marketplace change, and um, and it's such a struggle. And of course, the whole trend, at least in psychology today, is towards niche marketing, niche, 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 and you know keywords and um, focusing down special specialization and fragmentation. It's exactly the opposite of you know what has been so much of my own life. Work and it's very frustrating. So maybe um, um, one way to uh, to the question that comes to mind is how does one maintain a sense of wholeness uh, in an increasingly fragmented world? Is that is that the question for me, for our day, for a therapist, for you? <laughs> yeah, it's a very good question. Yeah, but I was almost my sense of um, uh, that's what uh, that the question was implied in what you were saying. Yeah, yeah I, I was talking about me at the moment, how to practice professionally and mm-hmm. some kind of integrity. I mean, the the problem with the word expansion is it becomes a jack of all trades or a master of none, and there are people who are very diffuse, and that's not good either. I mean, I do appreciate. I think about that with dance therapy training now um, because I do want to get back to it. Whether I'm an expressive therapist, because I use art and I do track images and I do believe in a certain amount of multimodal, you know, crossing boundaries. But there's something that I got from the depth of training in just dance that I could spend 10, 15, 50 years focusing on just dance and I won't have begun to get to the bottom of what I can learn from the discipline. So, you know, one doesn't want to spread oneself too thin either and know where your home base is. That's, uh, that, I think, is the tension of, for me of having a home base, mm-hmm. but also um, being um, a person, you know, it's, it's, it's the same thing in life, you know, knowing where your home is, but being a citizen of the world at the same time, but you do need a home base. And yes. That's a very uneasy balance to keep finding. An uneasy balance or a creative tension? A creative tension in today's world. It's much more complex in today's world. Yeah. But I think just biologically, we are human beings. We need our home base. We need a nest. We need an identity. We need to attach somewhere. We can't just float. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast, See the website, relationalimplicit.com.